Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So I want to start this morning by asking you a question. How many places of worship do you think there are in the United States? Every religion, just take it all together. How many places of worship do you think there are? Just turn to the person next to you and give them your best guess. What do you think that number might look like? In the whole of the United States, how many places of worship do you think there are? Go ahead, just turn to the person next to you. Just take a guess. Okay, according to the Association of Religious Data Archives from the 2010 survey, okay? And they covered everybody from A to Z, from the Amish to the Zoroastrians, okay? Everybody covered. They pulled together and they said that there, as of uh, 2010, 344,894 places of worship in the United States. That's now, that's kind of a bit of a trick question. By the way, how many got like within at least 100,000 of that number? Okay, good. Good job. Um, It's kind of a trick question, Because one of the things we're going to talk about today is this idea of lifestyle of worship. Because worship is not constricted to a place, a certain building. Because when we think of worship, places of worship, we think of cathedrals and and maybe shrines or temples or synagogues or something like that. But the truth of the matter is worship, there are as many places of worship as places you live. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. It is the fourth in our Values that we're talking about. This is community. What are the the core values? What makes Northgate Northgate? And Pastor Larry mentioned them earlier that we, from the very beginning, we decided we were going to be a grace filled community because every one of us are in desperate need of God's grace. And so we're going to learn how to extend grace to one another. We want to be a grace filled community. And with that, understanding that we are all people in process, we're all at different places in this journey. We are all different levels of maturity and understanding. So we make room for everybody, wherever you are at, to find a place to grow. Because we're all people in process. None of us have it all together yet. And then last week, Pastor Larry talked about this idea of redemptive relationships. That God has placed you in a family, has put you on a job in a neighborhood to be a part of God's redemptive work in that group of people. And so today we're going to talk about the fourth of our core values, which we were talking about is a lifestyle of worship. What does that look like? Because when we talk about we come together on a Sunday morning or Saturday night, we come to worship and as if it was something that we went somewhere else to do. And what I want to help you discover this morning is that worship is something that you do every day of your life in one way, shape, or form. That worship is an expression of how you live your life in honor and glory to God. And when we gather together, the value of that is that all of us who are worshipers already in our everyday lives come together and unite our hearts, unite our voices, unite, um, unite our minds together in the celebration of what God's goodness and greatness and glory is all about. In fact, let me give you a definition of worship, kind of the working definition we're going to have this morning. It's from Dallas Willard. He wrote it this way. He said, worship is the intentional turning of the mind toward God and ascribing to him all the greatness, goodness, and glory that belongs to him. Okay? It's an intentional mindset. It is, it is turning our minds and our hearts toward God in such a way that we begin to give him and attribute to him the glory, the greatness, and the goodness that is due his name. Paul wrote about it to the Colossian church. If you want to take your Bibles and turn there, in his letter to the Colossian church, he did it this way. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. He wrote, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with 
all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that, that's so important. He actually repeated, if you skip on down to verse 24, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Father. And Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father. So what does that look like? What would it look like to live a lifestyle of worship? What would it look like to spend an ordinary every day with God? I want to help give you some uh, ideas on what that might look like for you. Some suggestions and ways that you can start practicing the presence of God in your life. Brother Andrew uh, wrote about this. Just practicing the presence of God. It's what Paul talks about. Whatever you do. So we're going to talk about that. And here's, one, here's a first thought. Cultivate a daily awareness of God's presence in your life. Now, there's a lot of ways you can do this. But just learn to cultivate and, and become more aware of God's presence in your life every day. Like I said, I'm going to give you some practical ideas. But just there's a lot of different ways you can do this. Here's one thing that they all have in common. You need to slow down. Because the greatest threat to living a lifestyle of worship, the greatest threat to being aware of God's presence in your life is the pace at which you run your life. And most of us run at such a hectic pace that we are so rushed, we are so distracted, we are so pulled in so many different directions um, that we lose this sense of God's presence with us. We're just too busy. Back in the 1950s, a cardiologist named Meyer Friedman, he's actually the guy that coined the term the type A personality, he was a cardiologist, and what he discovered were there's these common traits in many of the heart patients that he was treating, and a lot of it was stress-induced. And so he coined another term. He called it hurry sickness. That back in the 1950s, now, let me ask you, do you think it's gotten any better in the last 60 years? See, this idea of hurry sickness, that we live at such a fast pace in our lives that we lose the sense of life itself. Now, if you don't know if you suffer from hurry sickness, uh, I'm going to give you a couple of symptoms. This might uh, see if any of these apply to you. When you approach a red light and you have the choice of two lanes, you make a choice based on the year, make, model, and the age of the driver of the cars in front of you because you're guessing which one will pull away fastest when the light turns green. Anybody here ever do that? You tend to make everything a race, as in, Come on, kids, let's see who can take their bath the fastest because you just really want to get bath time over with really quick. Uh, at the grocery store, you choose a checkout stand based on the number of people in line multiplied by the number of items in their cart. Then when you're in line, you find the person who would have been you in that other line, and if they get through the checkout line faster than you, you are depressed for the rest of the day. <laughs> Hurry sickness. You pride yourself on being a multitasker able to do more than one thing at a time, sometimes to the point of forgetting at least one of those tasks. At the end of a long flight, you unbuckle your seatbelt just before the light goes off so you can get up, grab your carry-on, and stand in the aisle, even though you know it's going to be at least another 10 minutes before you're actually allowed to exit the plane. 
Anybody here suffer from hurry sickness? You know, we all do to some degree. So here's one of the biggest things you can do to living a lifestyle of worship. Slow down the pace of your life. Learn to say no to some things. Because it is the greatest threat to your spiritual growth in a life of worship. Because our lives get so busy, so cluttered, so distracted that we lose the sense of God's presence among us. Here's some very practical ways that you can do this. Learn to begin and end each day with God. You might at the end of each day, here's one of the things you can do. Just take a few moments before you go to bed at the end of each day and just review the day. Think through what you went through, the people that you encountered, the activities you were engaged in, the the tasks you accomplished. And just look back through the day and just see how did you do? How aware were you that God was with you? Maybe there's some things you're going to need to confess and and, and bring to light and and ask forgiveness for. Maybe there'll be times when you realize God was with me in that moment and I didn't even recognize it. See, athletic teams do this all the time. Football teams always review the game film because they want to know what worked, what didn't work, how good they did on certain plays and what didn't work and and who performed well. They do that. In fact, unfortunately, the 49ers have a few months now to go over game film, okay? But that's what they do because they want to improve. They want to get better. You could review the game film and just think through your day at the end of each day. Eugene Peterson writes about this idea that we tend to, in in Western culture, we think of the day beginning with the sunrise. As we begin our day, we get up, we get our cup of coffee, we turn off the alarm, we go on, and and that's the beginning of the day. He says, in Hebrew culture, actually, the day begins at sunset. And the idea behind that is that when you lay down and go to bed, you are recognizing that God is still at work. So you might this week, before your head hits the pillow, just take a moment and recognize, God, you are still at work, and you are in control of my life. My life is in your hands, and you're better, doing a better job at it than I am. So I'm just going to entrust my life to you and acknowledge it doesn't all depend on me, and now I can sleep. Don't you think you might sleep a little bit better at night when you begin your sleep acknowledging that you're not in control and God is? In fact, even when you wake up like at 2 in the morning, you can just say the little prayer once over again, God, it still is all in your hands. I am not in control. Even though I'm trying to figure this out at 2 in the morning with no sleep, I'm going to rest. Just Ending your day or beginning your day. You might begin on, at sunrise when you begin your day, when you get up, when you take your shower. In fact, even before your feet hit the floor, maybe just a simple prayer acknowledging, God, I invite you to be a part of my life today. I invite you into all the details. You know what's going to happen before I do. You know who I'm going to encounter. You know what I'm going to be asked to do. I'm going to be called upon to do. Would you just be with me and would you remind me of your presence as I go through the day? When you take your shower. You take a shower or washing your hair as you wash your body. Lord, as I wash my body, would you cleanse my soul and make me fit for your use today? They're just simple ways to just make space for God in the hectic pace of your life. Another really good thing to do is spend time in God's word. Whether you're a morning person and do it in the morning or an evening person, do it in the evening. But take some time each day and spend it in God's word. Paul, said, uh, Paul wrote, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be settled. 
Quiet down, slow down. But then he goes on and he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it sink down deep into your soul. Teaching and exhorting one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Just let the truth of scripture sink down deep into your soul. One of the things that we are committed to here is not just to teach people on a Sunday, but to help people in apply the word of God to their life. And it's one of the reasons why we're so excited about the series we're going to start in two weeks called The Story. One of the great things, Zondervan Publishing has done this. They've taken the Bible, um, and it's not the full Bible, but it's the story, the unfolding story of God's redemptive work in history from Genesis to Revelation, and put it together in a novel form. No chapter, verse, numbers by the side, no indents. It just reads like a book. And what we've done is, as a part of this whole thing, we have been able to purchase for $5 a copy, we've been able to purchase 700 copies of this book. We want everybody to get a copy of this, and we're going to go through the story together. And you're going to find how enriching it becomes in your life. And you can read a chapter a week and just understand the story of God. Because you probably know a lot of the Bible stories. You know about Noah and the flood and Moses and the Red Sea and all that kind of stuff. But you've never understood how that whole story hangs together. So together, we're going to do that this year. And we're going to make a copy available for every person here. Let it sink down deep into your soul. One last thing. I don't know if you noticed it as we read through that, how often this idea of gratitude came up. Do you notice what he said? He said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Goes on, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. He goes on, whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. One of the great ways to develop an awareness of God in your life is just from time to time throughout your day, give him thanks. Just an attitude of gratitude will develop a greater sense of God's presence in your life. Just at any given moment, God, thank you that you're with me in the middle of this. I don't know how I'd handle it without you. Or God, thank you for helping me with that project. Or God, I'm really going to need you right now. Thank you that you're with me through this relationship, this confrontation I'm going to have to have. Just attitude of gratitude goes a long way to develop an awareness, daily awareness of God's presence in your life. Another aspect of it. Practice treating the people around you with the grace of God. Everyday living is going to involve interacting with people. You are going to interact with people. You're going to have relationships with people. You're going to have all these things going on. So if we're going to talk about a lifestyle of worship, it has to be in the context of other people. But what can happen is those interactions with people can become acts of worship. Paul wrote, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bear with each other, and forgive one another. See, here's what happens. Every interaction with another person can be an act of worship if it serves as a reminder of how God has interacted with you. When I show compassion to somebody, if I can do that with the understanding, you know, God has been compassionate toward me. And because of his compassion toward me, I can be compassionate towards somebody else. God has been kind to me, so I can extend his kindness to somebody else. God has been gracious to me, so I can be gracious. Anytime it turns my mind to God and reminds me of his goodness, his greatness, and his glory, it becomes an act of worship. 
And that's why you find that throughout Scripture so often that we are to relate to other people the same way God has related to us. Paul wrote about it to the Corinthian church. The God of all comfort comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. The same way God has comforted us in our difficulties, we can be an extension of his comfort to other people. The same way he's done it for us, we can do it for others. And it becomes an act of worship. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. In the same way you've experienced the love of God through Christ, extend his love to other people. It becomes an act of worship. Love is an expression of God's grace. And when we extend his love to others, we are reminded of his love to us. And it becomes an act of worship. Because more often than not, God does his work in your life through other people. And not just the lovable people, not just the kind, compassionate people in your life. More often than not, in fact, I would say God does some of his best work in your life and in my life through the difficult people in our lives. You notice that? Show of hands this morning. How many would say, I can think of at least one difficult person in my life? Anybody else? Okay. okay. Now, if you were sitting next to somebody who raised their hand and you came with them, you might be their difficult person, okay? Because we are all somebody else's difficult person, believe it or not. But God uses those relationships to change our lives. And when we begin to be able to relate to the difficult people in our lives, the same way that God has related to us by his mercy and grace, it can become an act of worship. It's everyday lifestyle worship. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. There's probably no greater act of worship than to extend forgiveness to somebody else. Because that's what God did for us. Through Christ, he absorbed the guilt and the pain and the suffering of my my misbehavior, my sin. He absorbed it so that I could be forgiven. And when I extend forgiveness to somebody else, it should serve as a reminder to me of how God has extended his forgiveness and grace to me. And when I do that, it becomes an act of worship. And the last one. If we're going to talk about lifestyle worship, we've got to talk about your work. So approach your work as service to God. Approach your work, approach your job, or, or whatever it might be. If you're a student, approach your schoolwork. If you, if you are a parent, if you're a single mom at home, that is work. It qualifies. See, sometimes, sometimes we think of, of worship as being something that's done in a building or something that's done in a particular Anything that you do wholeheartedly to God is an act of worship. That's what he says. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are are serving. Notice what he said, whatever, whatever. So if you are a single mom, if you are a a stay-at-home mom or a single mom, and you are caring for your child, that counts as worship. If you are an artist that creates objects of beauty, that counts as worship. 
If you were an architect or a, build, or a, or a carpenter and you build buildings, and, and that is an act of worship. If you are a manager and you manage people and you help them become the best that they can be, that can be an act of worship. If you do it wholeheartedly and with thanksgiving. Because you, each and every one of us in this room, have a unique set of skills, abilities, talents. We have unique personalities. And God takes great delight in watching you maximize the gifts and talents and skills and abilities that he has given to you. Because that's what he created you to do. And when you do it wholeheartedly, it can be an act of worship. When you do it with thanksgiving to God, it can be an act of worship. It all counts if we do it wholeheartedly and with thanks to God. Think about the, the creation story. You remember, as you read through the creation story, each day God creates, and at the end of each part of his creation, he creates something, and he ends of the day, and he says, it is, it is good. And on the second day, he creates, and it comes to the end of the day, and he says, it is good. See, God took delight in that creative process. That God started this world by working, and he did it with great joy. And delight, so that the end of each of those creation days, he stood back and he went, wow, that's good. Now, what if God approached creation the same way that you and I tend to approach our daily work? John Ortberg writes about this. He kind of imagines this in his book, The Life You Always Wanted. He kind of puts it this way. In the beginning, it was 9 o'clock, so God had to go to work. He filled out a requisition to separate the light from the darkness. He considered making stars to beautify the night and planets to fill the skies, but he thought it sounded like too much work. And besides, thought God, that's not my job. So he decided to knock off early, call it a day, and he looked at what he had done, and he said, it'll do. On the second day, God separated the waters from the dry land, and he made the dry land flat, plain, and functional, so that, behold, the whole earth looked like Idaho. <laughs> he thought about making mountains and valleys and glaciers and jungles and forests, but he decided it wouldn't be worth the effort. And God looked at what he had done on that day, and he said, it'll do. And God made a pigeon to fly in the air, and a carp to swim in the waters, and a cat to creep on the dry ground. And God thought about making millions of other species of all sizes, shapes, and colors, but he couldn't drum up any enthusiasm for any other animals. In fact, he wasn't so crazy about the cat. Besides, it was almost time for the late show. So God looked at all he had done, and God said, it'll do. And at the end of the week, God was seriously burned out. So he breathed a big sigh of relief and said, thank me, it's Friday. <laughs> That's not how the creation story reads. God celebrates each act of creation. His handiwork, and he stops and he celebrates it. My, my dad is a bill, was a bill. He's retired now. He's a building. Actually, my folks are here this morning. Would you just raise your hand? Just wave to them. That's... 
I really got to be on my game this morning. But um, Now, they're so involved in their home church that they don't get up here very often, but they had kind of had a free Sunday, so they came up and visited with us. Um, but he he's a, was a building contractor. And so when I was a young kid, I learned carpentry. Working for, in fact, the first summer job, the real, first real summer job that I have, I started working for him as a carpenter. Well, I wasn't a carpenter. I was a gopher. That's what I did. And I hated it. I hated it because I was, first of all, I was the boss's son, and I was put under the tutelage of one of his foremen, and, um, and he just, I think he kind of took it out on me, whatever he wanted to take out on the boss. I don't know. But it, it was just miserable. I got all the grunt work. It was terrible. I did all the cleanup. I dug the trenches for the foundations. I, I nailed off subfloor all day long, just hammering nails all day long. I hated it. It was boring. The worst summer job I ever had. In fact, you can ask my wife on Sunday nights when I would drop her off after a weekend together, and, 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 I, would, and I would just think, oh, tomorrow I've got to go to work. I just hated it. But over time, I learned some of the trade, and I learned to be able to put things together and make them look good, and I learned finish work and trim work, and one of the last jobs I did for him, we did him, it was a, probably a multi-million dollar job in Piedmont. Huge mansion, just totally redid the whole thing. And, and, part, and I remember very clearly, very distinctly, you know, like 12-foot high ceilings just in the entryway, you know? And actually, it might have been 14, 16 feet high. I don't know. Way up on the scaffold. But there was this built-up crown molding that we had to put in. It was like at least four or five different layers to it to build this really nice high cornice all the way around. In fact, in all of the main rooms. And I remember very distinctly, because everything has to fit just right. You have to make those cuts just so, and back cut the coping and all that and put it. And I remember one day standing up at the scaffold and putting that thing together and looking, standing back and looking, I went, whoa, I did that. <laughs> and there was this little bit of joy that just kind of crept up inside of me, like I can do something like that. I can make something beautiful that not a lot of other people can do. But I can do that. And it was just that little sense deep inside of me, like that must have been a little bit like what God felt when he created this world. It was good. It was good. See, when you approach your work, whatever it might be, if you are a student, if you are a, a stay-at-home mom, if you are a manager of people, if whatever you do, you do with all of your heart, and you do it with a sense of gratitude that God has given you the skills and the talents to be able to do that. And you do it as unto him, not because evaluations are coming up or there might be a raise or a bonus in it for you, but just simply because you're doing it for God, it becomes an act of worship. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about lifestyle of worship. It is every aspect of what I do, becoming more aware of his presence, turning my mind and my heart towards him. And then doing whatever I do for his glory, for his goodness, for his sense of greatness in my life. And when you do that, your life becomes a life of worship. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.